Hey ladies, welcome to WTF, Women Talking Frankly, a running conversation with your hosts, Kyle and Candace. And you, about issues facing women, such as health, hormones, our looks, our libido, life, and anything in between. We promise to dig deep and get into it each episode. Welcome. We're so glad you joined us today. Welcome back to WTF Women Talking Frankly, and today it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Actually, not today, but all every day of this month, and we wanted to talk about that with our favorite breast cancer researcher and scientist, Dr. David Zava. We've had Dr. David Zava. Welcome, Dr. David Zava. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome. Thank you for coming back. Yes, we've had him... uh, do an interview with us uh, a couple months ago. I th- no, it was actually before COVID, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Um, but I remember, David, when I first started working at ZRT, that your your book, the breast cancer book, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Breast Cancer, How Hormone Balance Can Help Save Your Life, had just come out. And the statistics there were that about one in eight U.S. women would develop breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. And actually, that hasn't changed much. In 2020, it's pretty much the same. Um, An estimated nearly 300,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer are expected. But what's interesting is that, um, whoops, I'm going to read. Breast cancer incidence rates in the U.S. began decreasing in the year 2000. They dropped by 7% from 2000 to 2003 alone. And one of the big theories is that this decrease is due to advances in... um, in uh, hormone treatment for women, bioidentical hormone treatment, and women stopping uh, synthetic HRT when the Women's Health Initiative came out. And I just wanted to say to our listeners that I think Dr. Dr. Zava has done is is among the leading lights in in showing us the way, you know, t- teaching us about the risk factors for breast cancer, talking about the importance of bioidenticals versus uh, synthetics. So. Just a little intro. Um, if you haven't listened to our other episode, just wanted to give you a little background that, that Dr. Zav is a biochemist, cancer researcher, a teacher at heart. He didn't start out trying to build a company. He, as a researcher, wanted to provide healthcare practitioners and patients with a deeper understanding of the role hormones play in wellness. And to this day, he's continually searching to understand more fully how the world around us impacts our well being and how our lifestyle choices, environment, and genetics impact the delicate balance of our hormones, particularly in relation to breast cancer. So I wanted to note that in Chapter 2 of your book with Dr. John R. Lee, the the, um, title of the chapter is Risk Factors for Breast Cancer, Why It All Points to Estrogen. So I wanted you to comment on that a little bit and tell us a bit about the research you did and how you came to write that book with Dr. Lee. Yeah, and also, would you mind talking about when you did your breast cancer research, what kind of correlations you saw with various hormonal imbalances? Yeah, uh, early on in in Texas, when I was at the University of Texas Health Science Center, we were we were looking at at the impact of estrogens and progesterone, and we pretty much found that you know estrogens would in model systems and also in breast cancer patients that that the estrogens would stimulate the growth of of cancer and and progesterone 
had a more of a negative inhibitory effect. Mm -hmm. So it was a it was a balancing effect between estrogen and and progesterone, and um, so we we did a lot of models systems. I then went to Switzerland and worked in a clinical study where we looked at um, the effects of anti-estrogens, tamoxifen, mm -hmm. in combination with chemotherapy. So it was a big international clinical trial that I was involved in. And so I ran a laboratory. We were looking at, at breast biopsies. So basically what I did is I worked with the pathologist, and we looked under the microscope at breast cancer cells and that came in from the biopsies from, from the women. And we identified the the receptors for the estrogen. So we could see that um, estrogen receptors were definitely present in the in the tumor cells that were um, in the in the breast tissue. Um, and there was actually tended to be fewer progesterone receptors. So um, that that's really kind of the beginning of of how I got to look at estrogens and breast cancer. Um, Fast forward 10 years, and um, I was reviewing grants for NIH, looking at the effects of, of estrogens and breast cancer again, and it became more apparent that there were, it wasn't, it wasn't estradiol per se, it was actually the metabolites of estrogen, and mm -hmm. some women make more of those bad metabolites than others, so um, my goal really was to develop methods so that we could we could measure the levels of those metabolites, and we've done that, and we do that in urine. That's uh, called estrogen metabolite testing. So we can look at, um, and we know that that the the estrogens um, have to go bad. So the diagram you're talking about, you know, where we have all these different things that come into play. We have heavy metals, you know, we have um, insulin resistance, we have um, environmental toxicants, uh, we have all different sorts, we have stress, we have all these different things that come into play. Uh, we have a, a melatonin or a lack of melatonin, many different things that come into play that actually alter how estrogen is handled in your body. So if it gets metabolized down the wrong pathways, meaning it becomes oxidized, then um, it's more dangerous. And so that's what we do for, with testing now is we take a look and see whether or not a woman is forming what we call catechol estrogens. I, it's, this is like glue. It's like estrogen is, is great. It's wonderful for your body. Uh, everybody needs it, um, but it can go down the wrong pathway. So if, like I said, if you're not sleeping well, you're not producing enough melatonin, you know, you're insulin resistant, you're stressed out, you're uh, lots of different things. Most of the things we know of that are going to prevent cancer are related, related indirectly to that. So these, these estrogens can go bad. And if your body doesn't methylate them properly, you need B vitamins in general to do proper methylation. Then they can, they can spill down and bind to DNA and damage DNA and cause mutations that can lead to cancer. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what I've, what I've been involved in, looking at all those things um, in that matrix, mm -hmm. you know, from progesterone to 
uh, insulin to uh, melatonin to too much cortisol. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we know too much um, catecholamines like adrenaline, sure. noradrenaline, um, many different things. So that's a that's really what went into uh, the book that John Lee and I wrote. And so John John was uh, Dr. Lee was uh, you know he was a practitioner. He he saw lots of different patients, um, and I was the biochemist. Mm -hmm. So we met at a, at a meeting where he was actually lecturing on natural progesterone. And um, he had certain talents, and I had certain talents. So we put them together and, and wrote the book, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Breast Cancer. So question, you bring up so many good points. My brain is just going crazy right now. But first of all, how much do you think um, genetics has to do with breast cancer versus adding all the other stresses, the catecholamines, the change in lifestyle has to do? I think genetics cancer? has some something to do with breast cancer, but not as much as epigenetics. You know, okay. it's what you expose yourself to, your environment, mm -hmm. what you eat, whether you exercise or not. Do you get good sleep? Are you sleeping next to a railroad track? You know, it's all of these kinds of things that are going to come into play in terms of um, how your genetics are, are going to work. I mean, you could have you could have a flaw in your genes, um, um, and that that would increase your risk. Mm -hmm. It's like okay, you live next to a big highway, and every day you have to walk across the highway, as opposed to you live out in the woods, um, and you're you're not going to have the same risk factors. Or you live next to you know a, a smokestack that's you know mm -hmm. blowing stuff on your house and your and your your room. So. Um, environmental factors play a huge role, and also, like I said, your your stress, how you live your, your life. stress level, and sure. and how you take care of yourself. What do you put in your body? You know, what are you? Mm -hmm. What kind of foods are you eating? Organic foods? Are you eating? You know, food that is not good for you. That's going to increase because you know we. I, I learned early on when we were looking at, we had a chemical that we we would use and inject it into uh, young rats young female rats, and it was called dimethylbenzanthracine. And we knew, because this was the studies we were doing, we knew that this chemical would cause mammary cancers in mm -hmm. these rats. They wouldn't get any other kind of cancer. They'd get mammary cancer. They would get brain cancer. They would get liver cancer. They'd get breast cancer. So that was a good model to look at. But we also realized that um, we, we had to use, when we injected it into the animals or intubated in, into them through their mouth, um, that we had to use, we had to use uh, uh, corn oil because, because it was uh, unsaturated fats. So it was, it was, it was enabling mm -hmm. the chemical to, to get oxidized. And we know that we know that now. You know, you shouldn't be eating margarine. You shouldn't be eating, you know, certain kinds of of, uh, of fats. Well, hydrogenated fats, <clears throat> trans fats, oxidation. Right. So, can I, I know epigenetics? The study of epigenetics has been around for a long time. Basically, how you shape your DNA. How can a woman? I mean, thinking about now with the COVID going on and how much more stress we have in our lives and things, are, you know, people are much more likely to feel stressed out. Can you actually shape your DNA adversely at an older age as well? Or do you think it more, more likely happens when you're younger? 
Well, I think you can do it at any age. You know, okay. you can you can make it better. You can make it worse. You can be um, trashing your symptoms, your system at any age. And I know that the risk of breast cancer rises with our age. You know, with the, when we say right. one in eight women, we mean one in eight women by the time you're 90 years old. So it's not like, you know, young women. And our a- immune system changes, too. So, you know, we, we, we think about COVID and we think about the people that are more susceptible to COVID. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's older people. You know, their immune system changes a bit. So same thing with breast cancer or any other kind of cancer is that, you know, your immune system is constantly surveying and looking for abnormal cells and uh, finds when it kills it. Um, so, yeah, that begins to wane a bit. Your hormones are not working as well as we age um, from a hormonal perspective. You know, our growth hormone goes down. Our uh, DHEA goes down. So mm-hmm. normally when we're a teenager, we make a lot of DHEA. It has a big impact on the immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, cortisol doesn't go down and even goes up a little bit. So it's a shift between um, something that's anabolic and building and good for the immune system versus something that is um, suppressive mm-hmm. uh, of the immune system. And cortisol should suppress the immune system to a certain extent, but not to the point where it completely shuts it off. And my understanding has always been that, you know, with most cancers like colon cancer, breast cancer, um, they're much more aggressive when you get them when you're younger in general. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think I think, yeah, because because they 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 have to they have to be an aggressive tumor in order for that, that tumor to form in someone young who has a much better immune system. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to go back a bit to those pathways because I'm not mm-hmm. sure most people will understand that there are three different pathways, not that you need to remember that, that estrogen metabolizes down and only one is is the good one. Um, and and so how do we is there a way to know that you're you've done that you're doing the testing so through testing we can tell if our estrogens are going down the proper pathway not increasing this estrogen burden you're saying you know excess estrogens are really the main risk for breast cancer we don't want to increase those those estrogens how do we make sure it's it, they're all going down that right pathway yeah there's the, the good pathway there's the 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 good the the not, bad and the not ugly. so good and the very and the very ugly. Yeah. And can you name those again? Like you the know, there's, yeah. there's chemical so names. The, the, the good the good one is estriol. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what you make when uh, you're in utero. Your body goes out of the out of its way. The the fetus and the and the mother make massive amounts of estriol. And and the reason for that is that it can't turn into a bad estrogen. Right. It has does not have the capacity to do that. It's an, so it's an endpoint, isn't it? it it's an endpoint. It's like a struck match. Yeah. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna get a forest fire with the struck match. You know, right. so it, it it doesn't have that in, that negative energy to it. Uh, you then have um, the the what we call a two catechol. It's like a key. A two catechol is is um, sort of a pseudo estrogen metabolite that will bind to DNA, but it doesn't, it doesn't cause cancer. Hmm. So the, the body repairs it. And when you eat a lot of cabbage and cruciferous vegetables, or you take things like what we call diendylmethane. Dim, or, dim. Yeah, dim, yeah. or indole-3-carbonyl, you, you, you generally push 
the any kind of estrogen metabolism in that in that direction. Mm-hmm. So you're and you're able to more able to you can methylate those, and then it's and then it's uh, not problematic. The bad ones are the four catechol estrogens, four hydroxy, yeah, four hydroxy. Uh, those are I kind of say like you know it's like a, a, that's a shark mm-hmm. as opposed to you know little you know a dolphin a guppy <laughs> yeah so uh, but those those are going to rip electrons out of DNA once they form wow. they're going to rip rip electrons out of DNA so you you have an opportunity of uh, methylating those so you need to make sure that you know you're getting adequate amounts of B12 B6 folate. Uh, the B vitamins, which are essential for methylation. Which particular B vitamins do you recommend? Well, the ones that are really working well are B6, B12, and folate. Okay. Yeah, those are the B, those are the primary B vitamins that are involved in the methylation. And, and and diet, like you mentioned, it's the cruciferous oh, yeah. vegetables like cabbage, oh, yeah. broccoli, yeah. superfoods. Super but, but besides that, um, it, it, you know, those things are helpful. But in general, when you're talking about behaviors, um, when we're talking about a poor diet, for instance, um, you know, the, the sorts of things that lead to increased insulin and insulin resistance right. and obesity, how does that, and we know that breast cancer rates are much higher in women who are overweight or obese. And what is, what is the insulin connection there? Yeah, insulin, the, the, the cancer cells, one of the things that they do, all cancer cells do, is they figure out a way to um, overexpress insulin receptors on the surface of the cells. So that's, back in the old days, in the 80s, we call those oncogenes. Those were normal right. genes right. that were overexpressed. And uh, so what cancer cell, breast cancer cells do is they tend to overexpress the insulin receptors. So actually when insulin receptors go up, the estrogen receptors and the capacity to make those receptors goes down. That's exactly what we saw in cell lines. So, you know, if you're, if you're insulin resistant, then your glucose levels are going to be real high. They, cancer cells feed off of sugar. They feed off of glucose. Mm-hmm. And so you have these insulin receptors that are going to receive that signal and, and they're going to grow faster because they mm-hmm. that's just the way they manage to grow and, and proliferate um, through through the use of ma- mainly of, of uh, cheap sugar. Yeah, so I think, mm-hmm. I think maybe clarifying foods. too, insulin resistance happens when we eat too much sugar and too much simple sugar. We our insulin levels rise. In simple carbs because they're not because the insulin's yeah. not it's becoming resistant. It's not working as well, so we have more and right. more insulin, and therefore then it turns on these genes. It sounds like yeah, and, and also stores fat. Yeah, right. becomes a fat storage right. hormone. And that's one of the reasons that we developed the 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 insulin test so we could take a look and see. So if you you know if you if you have a 10-hour, 8 to 10, eight to 12-hour fast, mm-hmm. and you wake up in the morning and you poke your finger and collect some blood and your insulin levels are high, That you're insulin resistant. Because mm-hmm. insulin should be coming, it should be mm-hmm. at its, you know, at baseline level between 2 and 6 or so. Um, but if it's high in the morning when you wake up, then you're insulin resistant. And you kind of tell anyway. I Usually know. you're overweight, you know, you're... 
Yeah, in my practice, I've often, you know, people will just do like a fasting glucose, but it's not complete without the insulin levels. And sometimes right. I would actually do a two-hour insulin glucose tolerance test because sometimes you have, you know, normal insulin at baseline, normal glucose, but they both go sky high or just the insulin right. goes up. So you can catch early, like, diabetes and right. these increased risks. Yeah, if you're insulin resistant and not diabetic, then you are well on your way. You got right. your one foot in the diabetic camp. Mm -hmm. um, one, and that's why they measure hemoglobin A1C. So that's mm -hmm. another test that we developed to, to be able to look and say, okay, this person is full-blown diabetic. You sure. Know, that's an average of blood sugar over a three-month period. It is, is it? Yeah, right. it just uh, gives you the, the amount of, of glycation or amount of, of carbohydrates that the, that the red blood cells have been exposed to. Mm -hmm, and right. so that'll, it'll bind to the red blood cells. And so you have a certain amount of that, a certain percent. So you want it to be, you know, four to, four to five. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, five. But when five. it gets up to six mm -hmm. and then seven, seven is sort of the cutoff. We say, okay, you're, you're diabetic. Right. So it's um, and some people we look at, you know, they're way up there. They're real like high. Like nine. And I, I like the hemoglobin A1C test myself. However, if it's normal, it doesn't necessarily mean the person is not insulin resistant. So that's when I would add in the the insulin test, the insulin fasting insulin, maybe a two hour insulin. Because sometimes, you know, an average can be fine, but you, yeah, you're, you're missing right. the highs, and so yeah. it can be an incomplete test. But it's a it's a good test if it's high. It's one of those funny tests. I wanted to ask too about in conjunction with insulin resistance and polycystic ovarian syndrome, if there's a big link. We know there's a, a, a and maybe you could explain what's happening there when insulin is high and what's happening to that ovarian production of testosterone and androgens um, and how that relates. And is that a risk for breast cancer? Um, I don't think it is because I think androgens generally tend to be, uh, have a negative um, effect on, on breast cancer. So um, they're anti-estrogens. They're yeah. They're they're they act like anti-estrogens. And <laughs> I work with someone who actually uses testosterone in women. He she puts you know um, pellets of testosterone <laughs> in women close to the actually close to the breast tissue, along with mm. aromatase inhibitors. Because the the real key is that is mm -hmm. that you don't want the testosterone to convert to right. estradiol. And you really don't want it to convert to dihydrotestosterone because then you have a lot of uh, side effects from that. So, so the the pellet therapy actually contains testosterone, finasteride, which is prevents testosterone going to its more potent androgen DHT, mm. dihydrotestosterone, mm -hmm. but also an aromatase inhibitor. That so, sounds good. Is that Rebecca so, Glazer? Yeah. So nice. from from the lab perspective. Uh, and she has, you know, really good results in, in women not, you know, having recurrences of breast cancer. But often they'll, they'll have problems of too much testosterone. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, think so. you know, you lose your hair or you grow a beard. And <laughs> most women don't. Don't want don't, that. Don't, don't like that look. Yeah, they don't like looking like that. So. <laughs> not that look. Um, I don't like that. Sideburns. But, so yeah, sorry. But, but not all, yeah, not all of them. But um, it, it really works well for um, preventing... Uh, breast cancer, at least recurrences in, in women. Wow. Um, so is that something that women, so let's just, I know we're jumping around here a little bit, but if a woman has had breast cancer and they do the tumor markers and she has estrogen receptor positive, she can't be on estrogen, but possibly could be on testosterone. 
if she's taking aromatase inhibitors so she can get the bone density protection, correct? Right. right. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 you know, having worked with the clinical trials and stuff on anti-estrogens and and denying women of any kind of estrogen replacement therapy, I, I, I tend to believe that um, if you use a physiologic amount of estrogen, it's not problematic. But that's every, you know, every physician's decision as to whether or not they're going to give someone estrogen. Because in general, again, in my opinion, uh, looking at, at hormones in, um, in all different sorts of body fluids and saliva and serum and, and capillary blood from the finger and urine and so on, is that most of the forms of estrogen replacement therapy are more than women need. It's mm-hmm. not harmful, but it's more than they need. And, and the, uh, cancer is going to be stimulated with too much estrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there's also you know, a greater likelihood that it can form one of these bad estrogens right. because there's plenty of it around. And that, that, could, that could be damaging to the, the breast. But there's really... If you if you look at the literature, there's not a lot of literature that says that estrogen is all that bad uh, for a woman who's had breast cancer. You know that that oh. you you get a that you get a recurrence. The thing that that uh, gets me is that is that if you look at what happens when you take a woman's estrogen away, let's say for example in 2002, the Women's Health Initiative study came mm-hmm. out. And I said right off, I said, man, you're really doing women a disadvantage, you know, putting them at a disadvantage because they're coming in. And I'm sure, Kyle, you saw this. Oh, yeah. Um, they're coming in and saying, man, I, I, I'm miserable. You know, put me on, put me back on hormones. I'll take, I'll take the risk. Any risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, now their quality of life is, is gone downhill significantly because, oh, yeah. um, you know, estrogen is needed for memory. It's needed for your skin. It's needed for your bones. Um, cardiovascular. Yeah, cardiovascular. Brain. They're, they're, it's just like, you know, pick your body part. Yeah, any part. I've read somewhere that has like 400 functions yeah, in your body. Yeah, a huge number of, of functions. But you, it, and it doesn't take a lot. No. And, you know, there are, there are pharmaceutical, you know, products out there as well as, you know, compounded products that are, work, work perfectly well. And you can really keep the levels um, pretty low and you're you're what I what I always have found about estrogen is is it's not the estrogen that you take that that creates a problem it's the estrogen that you make right. that goes into that schema that I you know mm-hmm. you're looking at from the book that causes all these problems it could be it could be that you know you're exposed to too many bad heavy metals. I was going to you say know. you've got the xenoestrogens yeah, you've as got, well. I mean, we know that cadmium and is associated with, with right. increased risk of breast cancer. Um, others, others also. You know, you have mercury, cadmium, lead, mm-hmm. arsenic, um, and those are those are things that we now test both in urine as well as uh, in in blood spot for that reason. Mm-hmm. It, it might seem kind of odd, but just about everything that I've test I've developed in the laboratory is related it's to purposeful. breast yeah. cancer. Sure. So you know, and that's that's basically oh. how I've added on tests. You know, from the cardiometabolic we talked about insulin to the heavy metals to 
uh, essential elements like iodine and selenium, those yes. those you have to have adequate amounts or um, there's an increased risk of breast cancer. Sure, I was going to so, ask you about selenium as a possible. Yeah. You know, as a provider, I, that was my biggest problem was women would come in that have a history of breast cancer and they would just be miserable. Yeah. And it was so difficult to counsel them because their oncologists are putting them on an anti-estrogen right. and they're really dried up now and, and feeling and terrible. And inhibitor of some And sort. now they want to be on something. And the oncologist will put them on a vaginal estrogen now because they think it's safe because it's not absorbed it systemically. It doesn't do the whole trick, does it? No, it doesn't. And then the hard thing as a provider is to know how to walk that, you know, walk that walk with those patients. And you aren't faced with this as much as I was, is litigiousness. People will sue you, you know, if right. something happens. And so you yeah. have to really right. counsel people. And I would actually tell people, you know, they could get over-the-counter progesterone, do, do HEA, because it was hard to counsel them and not get myself in trouble. But there are women who would come in and they would actually sign a form saying, I'm 10 years out, please put me on estrogen. Right. And we would sign a form and we would put them on it because, and they felt, and they were so thankful because they felt like their lives were back again. Talk about a woman who has a breast cancer in her 40s. And, you know, she's just at the heyday of her life and you take everything away from her and you put her on these inhibitors on top of it. Talk about a hot flash. It puts somebody on tamoxifen. They're miserable. They can't sleep. Right. And now you've increased their cortisol levels and now you're really... I think you're probably increasing the risk of a recurrence no, in I'd some ways. I agree with that. I mean, you think about all the different things. You're you're you know taking away their estrogen. They're going to gain weight. That's yep. what you know happens oh. in a woman as she you know goes into menopause. You have all these different things. So the weight gain is in the waist. You oh, know, it's awful. it's uh, it, you if you don't have estrogen, you're not going to sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Estrogen increases serotonin. You know, the feel good. The, yeah, it's the Prozac hormone. So you're gonna so have a bad mood epidemic every day. Yeah. yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna <laughs> feel well. You're not gonna sleep. Okay, you don't. You know, you have you have lack of sleep. Your melatonin goes down. So all of those things, every one of those things, are associated with increased risk. So you're yeah. you know and and, and totally. I you know I re- I reviewed some of the grants where we were looking at um, aromatase inhibitors. So, you know, there was the tamoxifen. That was used, and that that works by going into the cancer cell, and at least in the in the uh, in the laboratory that we worked in, um, and it binds to estrogen receptors, and then it blocks the actions of estrogen, so it can, estrogen can't get to it. Okay. So it's an anti-estrogen, so it can't get to it, so it turns it off. It's like it goes into a lock, and it's a bad key, and it that's it's stuck there. So it turns it off, so the cells can't divide. Well, you know, when we were doing the the big international clinical study, we were looking at tamoxifen and we were looking at um, overall survival and survival mm-hmm. of of the patients. And the and the tamoxifen worked really well for the first five, two two to three years, and then the curves flipped, and oh. and tamoxifen wasn't as good, or it was <clears throat> it wasn't any better than than no treatment at all. Um, it works okay, but it can create, like you said, you know, can create a lot of problems. And then there, the kind of the next group of, of types of, of therapies were the aromatase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. So aromasin and aromadex and mm-hmm. those those types of things. So women went on those, and that just completely removes a lot of the estrogens in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but now now you can't convert testosterone 
into estrogen. So it's it's blocking the enzymes that that allow your body to make estrogen, and they get pretty miserable too. Yeah, they do. Yeah, because and you're they, talking about five years of therapy. Well, I know. But, I mean, and and what if you're what if you you know get breast cancer when you're forty? Exactly. And and it's like okay, well, you only have to use this for five years, and it's like okay, well, what about when I'm forty five? Because I plan to live, you know, until I'm eighty. Right. And most will. And my bone density is going to be terrible. Yeah. And my brain. So, and that was, you know, for me, I was a principal reviewer on the grants, and I, I wasn't very popular because I said, look, you know. Quality of life is just going to go downhill in these women. And I asked, I, I said, are any of you aware of the fact that you can get uh, natural progesterone over the counter? And these are all the scientists, NIH, sure. you know, sitting around a great big table and pontificating about this and that and what people are writing grants about. Mm. There, was, there was not a soul out of 25 people that were reviewing grants that had any idea – about uh, the fact that you could you could actually buy natural progesterone Isn't that awful? over the counter. They weren't aware of it. And and I think the point that's important there is that we're talking about estrogen and that it can, you know, how essential it is and if and we can use it safely, but it needs to be balanced with progesterone, progesterone right. exactly. which is its physiologic balancing partner. And I know that Dr. Lee, when he studied with Katerina Dalton in England, came back to his practice, never had a case, I think, as I understood, never had a case of breast cancer in his practice. But I wanted to um, remind you. Probably a new case. The same with me, Candice, in my practice. Over the years, I practiced for over 20 years doing bioidentical hormones. And I've I would say I had a handful of patients who confirmed breast cancer. Yeah. And I we've talked about this before on other episodes. You would think somebody like me, who is a huge prescriber of these, would have a higher incidence. But I always balance. I always did my yeah. saliva testing first. I made sure they were balanced. And they did. And they, first of all, people were thankful and they wanted to follow you. They'll follow you anywhere in the world to feel better. And you were talking about these, you know, women over 40, women over 50. There are two incidents recently that happened with me. One is a woman that worked with us at ZRT, Karen, I won't say her last name, Mm -hmm. who's now in her mid-70s and was told, you know, she has a lot of symptoms. She was told by her doctor recently that she is too old for hormones and she won't prescribe any for her. And and Karen's thinking, hey, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Then there's another woman that wrote to me who had tested... Um, really extremely, I mean, her estrogen was so low, it was off the charts. They couldn't even measure the P, the ratio between progesterone mm-hmm. and estrogen. And her doctor re- absolutely refuses to prescribe any kind of hormones, bioidentical, uh, because she has a history of, of breast cancer in her family. So those oh, are both well, pretty okay. sticky wickets. You know, well, how do you respond yeah, Either to to that sort of a woman who's obviously miserable. Well, I had a gal that used to come see me. She'd drive four hours um, to see me from Bend, and her husband was a doctor in the local community, so she didn't want to see anybody in her community anyway. She'd come see me, and she had a history of breast cancer. And we always had this conversation every year. We'd talk about it, and I put her on hormones. I said, I feel comfortable. I looked at her, her history. It had been like 10 years, and she's very healthy otherwise. She, she exercises yeah. all the time, eats a good diet. I said, this is the deal. You know, this is what we're... You are faced, according to the literature, you know, that's why they put you on tamoxifen to begin with, but you're miserable. So now you're weighing out your options for your longevity. And like you said, you, she could live to be 85, 90 years old. Yeah. Dr. Zav, I want to remind you of something that you, you wrote an article about 
Um, there was a doctor, you, you had put out the latest findings in your Health Watchers news and views, and someone attacked you saying that um, the, a doctor that was making claims for years that natural progesterone has the same effects as synthetic progestins. And you started out with, the, I very much disagree with the comment that progestins cause more breast cancer than estrogens because they act like progesterone. Could you comment on that? Because that's still well, the, the, a big confusion. The, the literature is there, and the literature, and that's what the Women's Health Initiative study showed. Mm-hmm. That's why they pulled it. Mm-hmm. It was it's the, because of this is because of the synthetic progestin. Much more so than the estrogen. Combined with the well, estrogen didn't have any increase with uh, the breast Actually, cancer. estrogen was used primarily um, as primarin. Right. Mm-hmm. And that had only about half the risk of breast cancer. So there, right. you know, there you go. If anything, it's it's estrogen is not creating that problem. Right. Like I said, we know that it's it's metabolites of estrogen, but everybody could have the same amount of estrogen, but only some women because they don't sleep right, or they're you know they they you know they're living and drinking well water that's got you know heavy metals in it, or they may have some genetic issue so they have all different sorts of things so in the book you know in that diagram i have all those different things that yeah right Mm -hmm. that that are you know that page 72 folks and this is the diagram in case you can't see (laughs) (laughs) you were eating poorly you you know you you tend to eat poorly when you're stressed it's like might have been in bad bad relationships can be very stressful yeah absolutely bad relationships are are going to cause stress and i you know, I, I when I, I talk to breast cancer patients um, and ask them, I say, what what would you say was the was kind of the one thing that may have happened to you? Because I'm I'm interested in mm-hmm. how stress absolutely yeah. Um, it's actually actually associated very commonly with a stress that you have no control over. It could be mm-hmm. stress, the loss of a loved one. Sure. Mm-hmm. It could be a divorce. You know, you don't have loss of a job. Yeah, loss of a job. Some something like that. And things piling on. Yeah. So it's 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 those kind of things. That seems to that seems to be the one common denominator. That doesn't cause breast cancer because it's like when I talk to people, they say, "Oh, it was two years ago." Well, that's the whole risk, the whole yeah. the, the whole uh, so, assessment scale years ago. You had a major traumatic the event in your life. The stress yeah, index. like six months, a year to two years down the right. road, you're more likely to get breast cancer or heart disease. But that's if, but yeah. but there's where there's where the high cortisol, mm-hmm. the lack of sleep, the, you mm-hmm. know, the low melatonin, the poor poor appetite, the lack of exercise, all of those things we know if we do them, each one of those is going to reduce your risk by half. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you eat the right foods, sure. if you sleep, you know, the right m- amount of time in a dark room, um, you know, that you reduce your your stress levels. So uh, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I retired at Speaking a really great levels. time. Yeah, two nearest. Now yeah. she does whatever she wants all day long. No, but, you know, it is interesting. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, this is a very stressful time, and I think all of us are really trying hard to manage yeah. our stress because it's... It's hard. It's, it's really, really hard It's right really now. difficult. Well, I think, you know, one of the important things, too, is that stress, di- you know, disrupts for younger women, disrupts ovulation. Right. If we don't ovulate, we don't make progesterone. I see people who are young who have the same symptoms as women in menopause. They're not sleeping. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're having hot flashes, um, 
you know, and so it's kind of, I think about the lack of progesterone, how that affects the adrenals. That that can be a huge issue. You you know, you you, you make your adrenal hormones out of progesterone. Exactly. You know, pregnenolone and progesterone. So, you know, that's, those are, those are part of the precursors of Mm -hmm. of, uh, the adrenal hormones. So speaking to that, since you brought up young women, I, I, as a practitioner for a long time, over 30 years, it's pretty standard to start young women on contraception that includes uh, synthetic hormones. And there's, in, the, in terms of like the patch, uh, the pill, uh, the implant now, those all have systemic hormones. How is that going to impact their, they're not going to be making progesterone. So at what age is too young to start a woman on uh, you know, hormonal contraception? And my other question is the IUD that has progestin in it. It's so only supposed to act locally, but I've seen you know systemic side effects. What kind of um, you know long-term risks for breast cancer are you are you thinking we're going to see from those kind of methods? Uh, you know that generally birth control pills don't have a, a huge increased risk of breast cancer. I mean they've studied that very carefully. Um, I think if you use it. Very young. Mm-hmm. I, they, in Sweden, they had actually, you know, socialized medicine. They they know everything that everybody takes, and so they can mm-hmm. they can take a look and see. Okay, what's the risk here? It's you know, it's the it's the twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old girls that um, start using because the breast um, the breast cells are not fully differentiated yet. So there's more chance that they could get damaged, mm-hmm. you know, by the synthetic progestins. We know that synthetic progestins can, um, increase risk, um, of breast cancer. So, but it's not that much. It's not, it's not huge. It's not in like it's women. doubling in, in older women. But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there is an increased risk, but it's right. not like it's triple quadruple, uh, the risk with with a um, with a synthetic progestin and the birth control progestins tend to be a little bit different structurally okay. than um, the, the synthetic estrogens that women use in combination with with est- with estrogen a synthetic estrogen. So um, we have now developed saliva tests where we can actually look at ethanyl estradiol. We can look at some of the medroxyprogesterone acetate. Wow. While um, women are on birth control. Yeah. They test and, while yeah. they're on birth control. And so what are you looking for when you're measuring that? Looking for that molecule. How much of it is present? Because um, is it? We, we, know, we know what the relative affinity of that molecule mm-hmm. is for um, the estrogen receptor. So generally what we see, let's take Ethanyl estradiol, which is a synthetic estrogen, it's almost—it's in most forms of birth control, mm-hmm. um, is that we see that ethanyl estradiol quantitatively is, um, is, is approximately the same as estradiol. So the amount that they're using, let's say it's 25 micrograms or whatever it is that uh, you know, you're using, um, they're getting it right. Okay. So good to know. It, yeah, it's so it's yeah so it's it's good and and the, and we look at symptoms and we don't see a lot of symptoms, but in in a few people that we've looked at where they just have terrible symptoms, and these would be the you know the women that that you probably have talked to that said I can't take any kind of birth control exactly. pill at all. It just makes me I'm I'm I've lost it. When we look at when we look at at 
uh, as I've looked at a few of those, their ethanol ester dial is is enormously high. That's so interesting because so it's and, and you don't measure that when you measure ester dial. No, you don't. And I mean, back mm. in the day when I first started giving birth, well, back in the day when birth control pills were first formulated, they were fifty micrograms. Right. And then when I started becoming a nurse practitioner, they were thirty-five, and now they're down as low as like the low dose pills are like ten, as yeah. low as as twenty. And those the, the problem with lowering the estrogen too much for some women is that you have breakthrough bleeding, and women don't like that. So as right. the estrogen is only added to the birth control pill to control your cycle. It, it I, potentiates the progestin a little bit, but it's, it's primarily the progestin that is your contraceptive, uh, you know, turn on. You know, really. Right. So that's interesting. So, but getting back to um, this, so a little confusion here. Just want to clarify: the W Women's Health Initiative (WHI) study was stopped because of the increased risk of breast cancer on the combined estrogen and progestin. But you're Correct. saying it wasn't Fake that much. Really, not enough to even pull the study. Um, you're saying not enough what? To, not enough of a risk. You, the whole study was halted because they felt that the risk was so high for women on those yes. combined hormones. But you're saying they now were, that it was higher. It was statistically significantly enough, high, high enough that they were going to, if they continued that trial, they were going to have a, a more women with breast cancer that were continuing on that. So they, you know, they pulled it, and then everybody went off of any kind of hormone replacement therapy, which was really worse than yes. than taking it. All those frankly. women out in the cold with... Ne- it but was there was a bad. huge drop. Wasn't there a big dropout rate in the Women's Health Initiative? And if you confine the data to those who remained in the study, the risks were higher. I mean, I think they had something like 29% well, increase in breast cancer. But then if you, can, if you looked at just those who remained, it was more like 50%. Increase. It wasn't. I mean, it was... Yeah, it's an increased risk, but it's not huge. Twenty-nine percent's really it's a lot. Not, it, you know, it's, um, you know, and they were. It, it was hard to tell because the the synthetic or the the horse estrogen that they were using, Premarin, was actually actually resulted in a, a lowering of breast cancer mm-hmm, risk, mm-hmm. and you know maybe. Um, you know what John Lee used in his clinical practice because that's what he had available. He reduced the the level of of the conjugated estrogens, the Premarin, huh. to 0.325, mm-hmm. and then he used natural progesterone. I was going to say, can women feel safe using an HRT combination like that? Well, I I, I can't say <clears throat> why not. I, but I mean, I yeah, I mean that's what he used, and he didn't get. You know, mm-hmm. he got very little, if any, breast cancer in his clinical practice. That actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the problem with any oral estrogen is that um, you can have you can have some problems with blood clots, or you could have um, other things that are 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 going to be a little bit problematic, but not but not much. Not not at the really low dose of of the the conjugated estrogen. So that. That was really, and it's like you said, with birth control, you know, in the early days in Puerto Rico when they were using, they're giving them massive amounts and they kill some people. Yeah. And then they've they've consistently been lowering the dose. Mm-hmm. And they've done exactly the same thing. You know, I've seen that with testosterone in men. I've seen that now with, with estradiol, um, t- topical estradiol in women. They keep lowering the dose, you know, the amount that, that um, they recommend women use. So pretty soon, it's going to get to what I've been telling people for the last 20 years is you really 
shouldn't use serum to monitor your level of hormone that's getting into the body. You should use something like capillary blood from the finger or saliva. And you can't, you cannot use urine either um, because it doesn't show up very much. You know, you, you just yeah. don't see it. It's so, so interesting. So many people are so resistant still, still. after all these years to yeah. the salivary testing. Can you comment on that and just explain to the audience why salivary testing is superior to blood testing for looking at levels of hormones in the cell? Yeah. When you say hormones, um, um, well, quali qualify that. It's mm. any type of a steroid hormone. Steroid hormones are very small. They're in a molecular weight. They're, they're, they're very small molecules, and they're they're fatty-like. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're lipid-like. That they're because they're derived from well, cholesterol. cholesterol. Right. Um, so they're very small. Um, they're produced by the ovaries and the testes and the adrenal glands for the most part. They're they're then released into the circulation where they bind to binding proteins. So estradiol and testosterone bind to sex hormone binding globulin. Cortisol binds to um, cortisol binding globulin, progesterone binds to that, Thi uh, thyroid binds to thyroid binding globulin. So, so there's only a very small percentage mm -hmm. of that hormone that's circulating in the blood that's available to tissues. Actually we active. It, yeah, we call level. it bioavailable right. fraction. And it's about, it ranges from about 1% to 3%. So if you have 100 molecules in your bloodstream, only two of them on average are actually going to release from those binding proteins, we call that bioavailable, and, and move into tissue where it can bind a receptor, let's say for if it's estradiol, an estrogen receptor, it, it locks up with it, so it docks into it, it, it activates it, it then goes into the nucleus and, and stimulates the gene. So that's, you know, that's, how, that's how the hormones are, are working to... kind of key in the lock analogy. It's, yeah. it's exactly what it is. So yeah. when you're measuring the serum levels, you're measuring levels that are just not as bioavailable to your body. Yeah, you, and you can have different levels of bioavailability because you can have you know, more or less of binding protein. So if you want to know what's getting into tissue, right. which is really what you want to know. That's what I always tell people. Yeah. Absolutely. Then you should look at, then you should look. Saliva is is really the best of all the mag. You know, we do serum testing. We do um, um, uh, blood spot testing. We do urine testing. We do saliva testing. So um, of, of the four primary types of body fluids that people use, for steroid hormones, like estradiol and progesterone and testosterone and DHEA and cortisol, the saliva assay is hands down the yeah. the best of the assays. And I've been doing this for a very long time. I know you have. You know, and I've developed these assays. You know, and I can tell you when I look, you know, we look at symptoms in addition to what people are taking, and and I can tell you that, you know, the the symptoms correlate more closely with what we see in saliva. Now, absolutely. You can't you absolutely. can't use you can't use that saliva assay to look at things like insulin mm -mm. or LH, luteinizing hormone, or uh, FSH, mm -hmm. or, uh, or uh, thyroid hormones, or steroids. TSH. We have to use blood. And that's the reason that I developed the blood spot assay. So we could, we could have a simple mm -hmm. um, collection mm -hmm. that people could use to 
um, you know, monitor the other the hormones other than the, the steroid hormones. Plus, I, I like the blood spot testing in my clinical practice for people who are using sublingual in their right. mouth That's hormones and you important. can't measure. So just, I know this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but you brought up a really good point. These hormones are all bit come from cholesterol. So for women who are on statins or cholesterol-lowering drugs, we're going to see a plethora of symptoms, I would think, up relating to lowering their hormone levels, will we not? It can be. It depends on how much it lowers the cholesterol. But, you okay. know, um, we with our um, LC mass spec test, so we have um, a, a little bit different, more sophisticated way of looking at all the steroids. We're going all the way up close to cholesterol, you know, pregnenolone, pregnenolone sulfite, and we can see how everything is kind of raining down from cholesterol. Are they? Is that person making enough um, estradiol if they're taking something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of times women who go on, or people in general go on those, they feel tired, they feel muscle right. aches, and that could be the same thing that women feel when they're menopausal, yeah. when their hormones are being low. So I'm just sort of... And that happens in men, too. Yeah, their, sure. Their testosterone goes sure. down. Sure, Yeah. That's why don't be afraid of good fats, yeah. that we might right. be able to eat good and other, fats. And other ways to bring your cholesterol down other than just taking drugs. I wanted to just compliment Dr. Zava, though, in his uh, creation of this, making these the saliva test available to women and doctors, I think over the years, that's where the functional medicine movement has grown. You have so aided and abetted that because doctors like you, Kyle, are so much happier to see an available fraction of hormone correlated with symptoms. It tells you so much more. And with the patients, they're able to say, no wonder I feel this way. You know, we can make those correlations and say, this is, this is what's really happening at the tissue level. And that's why you're, you're feeling this way. Th- that is never done with blood tests. They don't even try to correlate symptoms with serum right, or any of it. I just want to circle back for one second to the birth control pill. Just, I mean, I'm kind of, that was a big deal. With, yeah. And I know you brought it up before, Candace, in conversations. So we can feel safe as providers and as mothers or with, of daughters of putting them on birth control pills in their teens if they have, first of all, a need for contraception, or second of all, if they have heavy periods or severe cramps. So you feel that that's not going to be increasing. I know I know we know that putting on birth control pills reduces your risk of ovarian cancer and uterine cancer for sure, but you're not going to see an increased risk. Oh, we would see an unbelievable epidemic of, of breast cancer, I think, in our country, right, in the world. So you're saying that in your in your I, I don't think it's I don't think it's from birth control pills. I think it's from the environment right. contamination. So so, but in your esteemed view, but putting a, a young girl on birth control pills is not going to increase her risk of breast cancer in general. Well, you did say the younger the they young, are, the, the, very, the, the more very risky. Young. So under yeah. 14, perhaps, yeah. before the breast cancer, before the breast tissue is fully formed. Right. Okay. But, but can I just raise the issue? If you have something like 52% of women are estimated to be on birth control that are not using it for contraception. So they're using it because their periods are heavy or because they have acne um, or because they have PMS. Well, they don't want to have periods. A lot of women nowadays don't want to have periods. Is that really a healthy approach when we know that these things are, we can identify these symptoms as related to a hormonal imbalance. And often we can use natural things like chaseberry or topical progesterone. Why put them on a pill? And I found, and I'm talking to a lot of young women because my daughters get me on all these podcasts that are, you know, the 
the demographic is women in their 20s and 30s, and most of them don't want to be on the pill. They don't feel good. They don't like it. And we have Dr. Jolene Brighton out there wrote a great book, Beyond the Pill, and Mm. so many people are embracing that. There are great fertility trackers now that allow you to track if you are sexually active. um, You can track it that way. I, I just personally... As a health educator advising people how to go natural, I don't understand why the default is always to put them on the pill. I, I think the problem has been we've gotten a little lazy in our country, and I think that we, we don't account, you know, young girls are more likely to get pregnant because they're not going to be as responsible. But when you get into mm-hmm. your 20s and 30s, hopefully you've, you've reached a level of adulthood, adulting. And I think those women, I agree with you 100%. I don't think it's smart to put every woman on birth control pills. Yeah. Give them choices. I mean, Candace, you and I are old enough that we had to chart our own cycles. People are getting back into that whole, the, the app, the you know, the period app things, and, and getting in touch with the what their bodies are about, not rather than suppressing them completely. I think that's. A I really think there's a huge growth I, of awareness, especially during this shift. COVID time. People are looking; they've yeah. got a lot of time to focus on themselves and to notice what's going on with how they feel, and and they don't want to be on things that are unnatural. I agree and, with that, and I they're think- they're frustrated with their doctors who say. You got acne, here's the pill. You got PCOS, forget it. You're never going to get better. You've got to be on the pill for the rest of your life. That is not what most people want to hear. Well, Well, it'll, you know, if you go on the pill for acne, it'll get rid of the acne, but it'll make your, the reason you got the acne to begin with, which is probably PCOS or something like that. Too much sugar in your diet. It actually makes your insulin resistance worse yep. and mm-hmm. you're going to get more weight gain around the waist and it's just not didn't not... you used to say that the high insulin causes the ovaries to overproduce androgens it, yeah it works yeah along with a lot of other things too. i think mm-hmm. it's I, I i found myself you know taking people off the pill for an extended period of time then doing a salivary t- a hormone test on them and then Balancing them with lifestyle changes and supplements. Sure, and that they, too. And PCOS, oftentimes bringing their periods back. But really, like you said, you came from a health education background. I came from a nursing background. Mm. Different approaches than standard medicine. You know, we are all about educating women and empowering them to make the changes. I think that's important. And increasing awareness, which I think, you know, you're, this book, a lot of young women are very concerned about breast cancer. They I have know. it in their family. Have a family history. They're worried about being on the pill. They're, you know, they they don't often know how their diet contributes to this. They don't really understand how obesity and alcohol contribute. You know, a lot of people drinking a lot of wine lately, <laughs> stuck oh, at yeah. home. Is that increasing our breast cancer risk, Doctor Sava? Well, we like our red wine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it'll. Yeah, more. You know, if you have more than a couple glasses a day. Mm. Yeah. Oh, good. A couple glasses is good. Well, I, I always think of, um, and I don't know how much experience you have with this, but I always think, well, I'm half Italian. No. And so it's in my, it's in my genes. You've got wine receptors. I have wine receptors. No, seriously. I think about, you know, countries like the European countries, like, you know, France, they drink wine with lunch and dinner and Spain and Italy. Do we see a higher level of breast cancer over there? I think they have about as much as we have here. You so know, when yeah, I, when so, I so lived lifestyle. there for a little while, I yeah, they have. It's I don't think it's that different. It's not a whole lot lower, um, it's not, but it's not higher. So no. is, is it really the wine, or is it really the way we eat here and the way our lives are stressful? I mean, I guess I'm. That's a huge question I get asked a lot. Yeah, I think it's about it's, wine. It's, yeah, right. I think Everybody. it's lifestyle. I think wine. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could. It, you know, it could be associated too much of it. Because you, you know, any type of anything that causes oxidation, it's like I can't mm-hmm. 
drink wine. I can't drink alcohol because I'm, my body is real sensitive to it. And I can tell my head just, you know, hurts. If And I love wine. But I drank a lot more when I was in Europe. Um, and the but, wine there is different. But, but if I don't drink very much, so um, but when I do, it gives me a headache. Mm-hmm. So I avoid it. Sure. Um, but I love it, you know. I, and if I'm, you know, if you if you were to offer me some, I really, know I've had wine a, a with really you good red wine. I've had wine with I guarantee you. Before. I'd drink could you, it. Could you come <laughs> up to wine country and, and share some wine with us? It's off. I think it's very relaxing and in a beautiful setting. Wine. Since we moved it's the to wine country, that goes along with yeah, it. Yeah, it's the con- yeah. it's just being, you know, it, it sparks conversation, yeah. it loosens inhibitions, yeah. it, all those things are good, it's and biblical. it's always in moderation. But those, but those, you see, those are the things that that reduce your risk exactly you know, it's, so it's, bond, a, it's, it's a, bonding it's you know yeah. it's, it's so, getting so the, yeah so all the isolation we're all feeling right now i think yeah. it's important so that's a great segue into we talked about you know all the risk factors and things we talked about life so what so supplements if you were a provider what would you be recommending people take? I mean, we talked about dim. How about like ashwagandha? And dim, by the way, is an extract of cruciferous and, vegetables. And you, you, so it's like eating two pounds of broccoli, I which, think. Which you can't do without getting horrible right. gas. Right. So <laughs> what do I think about it? I take it every day. Ashwagandha? <laughs> yeah. Do you? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about COVID. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, anything that is keeping my immune system intact you know mm-hmm. keeping Zinc. it keeping it working so i you know i i do all the things i know that you you should do at least from my reading of the of the medical literature um you should do to try to um prevent a virus from being able to grow ashwagandha would be one of them mm-hmm. elderberry curcumin mm-hmm. you know, uh Grape seed extracts, uh, those kind, those kind of things. They they have chemicals in them that go way back in history. That you know indicate that that these things um, when you when you take them, and I find for myself, I don't get sick as as frequently. Um, I'm knocking on wood. Yeah. Um, well, but, but, but with breast cancer, though, and think I know obviously and, bre- and breast cancer. You, keep in mind that breast cancer is an inflammation. Right. So, so you are if you are taking things, you know, in acetylcysteine, the mm-hmm. resveratrol, neck. the you know, yeah, the neck in acetylcysteine. Um, Precursor. A, a lot of a lot of the the things that we've talked about, you know, ashwagandha. That they have phytochemicals in them. That are good free radical scavengers. Sure, mm-hmm. and, sure. And that that's really important because um, you know a breast cancer is an inflammation, and it's an inflammation, and you get these free radicals, and the cancer cells have. You don't just have one type of cancer cell, you know they have to mutate, because the immune system is constantly coming in and surveying and killing them. And then um, those those cancer cells have got to mutate into something a little bit different, so the immune system can't recognize. Just like you know, we get, you know, we get the SARS, the original or MERS or whatever, and then we've got you know COVID, you know, we don't SARS, recognize it. Yeah, SARS too. So our immune system doesn't see it. Same okay. thing. So it. It is. We, we've got to keep our immune system healthy, Try and I think I think all of the things that we eat, from the berries, the good berries, mm-hmm. you know, blueberries, the, color blueberries, blueberries yeah, all this kind of stuff. Cherry, sour really, cherries. Really, yeah, are really important for keeping our immune systems healthy. And and 
In in the breast cancer book, you know, in my talking to many different people in different cultures, I realized that, you know, we, we just got away from using herbs and spices in foods. You know, that's traditional in in other, you know, ethnic groups around cultures. the world. Right. And um, I think those those are you know the small things that when you eat something, it doesn't you know it doesn't uh, create too many free radicals that because that's the free radicals that cause the estrogens to burn down the wrong pathway. You're not eating McDonald's Become, French fries. You're eating a curry, an Indian yeah. curry with all those rich <laughs> spices yeah, in the, it. Yeah, yeah, curcumin. It's wonderful. Right. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's like it's like I said. Um, in the early days when we were looking at this chemical that we knew would cause cancer in the mice, mm-hmm. um, we had to give them a transhydrogenated fat mm. along, you know, so a cor- corn cocks. oil or, or gotcha. so the different kinds of different kinds of things that, that would cause that chemical become active. And if we didn't give them, then they, they, they had a much lower incidence of, of uh, mammary cancers. So it's no different in humans. Interesting. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the catechol, the bad fork catechol estrogen, which we identify in urine, um, that's got to go to what's called a quinone. It's a very, very, very uh, reactive molecule, so it's hard to, to uh, find it because it's so reactive. As soon as it forms... It's it's like epoxy glue. You know, you mm. ever you ever work with epoxy and you get it mm-hmm. on your finger yep, and you, you can't touch get something. Your it's like my fingers are stuck together. You know? <laughs> so it's like that. You know, yeah. it's very it's very reactive, but it doesn't last for a very long time. It's like okay, you get that stuff out of the tube, hmm. you know, and you got a you got sixty seconds to work. Yeah, because exactly. it's going to dry really fast, and so you, that's the same kind of thing with with. Uh, these estrogens that form what's called quinone. So you're basically ripping electrons out of the out of the molecule. It becomes very electron hungry. So it's it's looking around for something. So it grabs onto if it's close to DNA, it'll grab onto DNA and and lock into it, form a covalent bond, and then um, and then it 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 causes a mutation in the DNA because the DNA just happens to be. Yeah, it's like, hey, yeah, I'll take my electrons, you know, and then it's like, uh oh, you know, now we have this complex of, you know, like I said, your fingers are stuck together. Um, and that's what it does. And I'm I'm pretty sure, I'm not absolutely positive, but it just would make sense that what the estrogen receptor does is it it can pick up these catechol estrogens. And take them the, the bad ones. The bad ones, and take them to very specific sites in the gene that are involved in increasing cell proliferation. We mm. know that's mm. what estrogen not good. does. Turning on the wrong cells. It's not a bad thing if estrogen goes in, estradiol goes in, and activates cell proliferation because every menstrual cycle it happens in your uterus. Yep. It happens yes. in your in the breast cells. It happens in your brain. It happens mm-hmm. in your skin. That's a good thing. That's where it's Nor- the angel so norm- of life. You're turning on normal. That's cells. normal, but mm-hmm. you don't want you know that estrogen looking like epoxy and going into DNA, and then it locks in and it binds and causes a mutation in the DNA. That's that's the problem, and all the bad things in the environment from you know uh, chemicals, plastics. 
And Even in your shower curtain. Yeah. Fragrances. Carcinogens, sure. you know, hormones in the food and pesticides. Got to look for hormone-free. So, so getting back to progesterone. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is taking progesterone on a regular basis, either postmenopausally, perimenopausal, or younger, are they going to see um, less of that pathway formation with the estrogen? Yeah. The progesterone will help clear any excess estrogen mm-hmm. out of your body. So mm-hmm. that's a that's a good thing because, you know, the more you have hanging around – that, you know, the more likely that that you know you're gonna you're gonna form these bad estrogens. So you don't want any more than you need mm-hmm. than your body really needs. So progesterone, and that's what it does every cycle. Right. Is progesterone will will will, will activate the estrogen uh, to help the body get rid of it. So push it off into into urine, excrete it. You know, however it's going to excrete it from the body. Um, so progesterone works like that, and it also works to lower the amount of estrogen receptors. So it, mm. in in my days when I was studying this stuff, it it downregulates the estrogen receptors. So mm-hmm. so the receiving unit for that maybe bad estrogen is no longer there. Right. So, that's, so that's it important. can't it can't find its way into the gene and lock mm-hmm. in and and damage DNA. So So it's a modulator. Um, it's a yeah. it's a hormone receptor modulator. So, it's, so it, it acts it it's the body's it's the body's natural anti estrogen. Mm-hmm. But by the same token it's if you use too much of it in the absence of estrogen, it's not good. Because um, if your body makes its own estrogen and enough of it, then a little bit of progesterone is great. And that's what John Lee – John Lee found that, in mm-hmm. his, and I'm sure you did also in your clinical mm-hmm. practice. When a woman is first going into menopause, she's still making a fairly mm-hmm. good Absolutely. amount of estrogen. Mm-hmm. Right. So you just give her progesterone by itself, uh, and this is what he, he found and he told me about, um, is that they're fine. But once they get, you know, frankly into menopause and their estradiol really drops, the progesterone's not going to work as well. You even you even have to lower the mm-hmm. amount of progesterone that's being used. And you and you really need to, based on, you know, as you would know, your your clinical observation of of a person saying, Oh God, I can't, you know, I can't think anymore, you know, my skin's falling apart, you know, I got all these different things and my bones are, you know, I'm got I'm an inch shorter. I'm achy. Yeah. Mm. So they're they're aging aging fast. And what people don't realize is if for progesterone to work, estrogen. you have to have estrogen first because estrogen uh, um, stimulates the, the the progesterone receptors, so progesterone can work. So you have to have a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you can measure that. You can. Me- that's why I like to measure it in saliva. You know. So if your estradiol is a reasonable level, then you don't need to give them any any uh, any more estrogen. And that's exactly what what John said. He said clinically, as you would know, Kyle, that. You, you can kind of tell. Yep, you absolutely can tell. Yeah. And especially when you notice that progesterone is not working, then you start thinking, right. do you have all, the, all these other symptoms? And you can become progesterone dominant. People do not like feeling that way at all. They feel yeah. bloated and, and cranky yeah. and Well, it can cause heavy. insulin resistance when you get yeah. when you get too much and of they, it. And they come in telling you yeah. that they're gaining weight around their right. belly. That's insulin resistance. And they resistance. don't like it. But yeah. you don't see that much in test results. You don't see progesterone dominance as much as you see estrogen dominance. 
But you see it more clinically, I would say. You have to sort of be experienced enough and listen, like you were saying, and observe. I think a lot of things as a provider you learn by observation and mm-hmm. listening. And you just have to go with your gut feeling on some of this stuff. And, and everybody's different. Yeah, everybody, and, and, you know, it's amen. A, you're, you're, <laughs> you know, it's a clinical practice. It's You're practicing, and every every I single agree. person that walks in, it's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. And so you you have to you know use your judgment as to you know how you're going to. What you're going to do with the hormones if you do anything at all. Yeah, I used to tell people all the time, you know, you might come in with your best friend. And you may have exactly the same symptoms. And I'm going to do a saliva test on both of you. And each one of you is going to have a different profile. Right. And each one of you is going to have a different regimen to make you feel better. Don't just, A lot of things are similar. But you're not exact. You're not a cookie cutter. This is not a cookie cutter approach. It's great with testing, though, that you can measure on a very simple level that ratio between right. the progesterone and the estrogen. I mean, it's a good guide along with symptoms. I always say that the stake in the ground is the estrogen. That's the number one thing steak? that you. Yeah, the, the stake in the ground okay. is. You're going to base everything. Get you talk about line. a ratio. Yeah. That estrogen's got to be right first, mm-hmm. because because let's say that the estrogen is way high and then you use a lot of progesterone. Oh, yeah. That's a that that might have the same ratio, but that's not what you want. It's not because because the estradiol is is binding its receptor, it goes in the gene, it stimulates the production not only of progesterone receptors so that the the cells can now respond to progesterone, but also new estrogen receptors. Mm -hmm. So so you, you have to have both of them. Yeah, I mean, the, the hardest people I've dealt with, I think, over the years was people who'd been on some of these, like, Divigel, Evamist, yeah. Uh, and they would have these massive. Like they they come in not feeling good, but I would measure their estrogen and then try to look, and they'd be so high. Right. Bringing them down was really hard because they didn't like it. But then they went, once they got that new normal, they mm-hmm. felt great. But it, it's it's a it's a work in progress. Well, Can it's I like ask? it's like it's like heroin. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like the dip- really no. I mean, testosterone makes men yeah. feel good. Estrogen makes women feel it really does. good. And you can get too much of it, and that not, that isn't necessarily a good thing. Mm-mm. That that you're you know you like it that much. Um, <laughs> it really needs to be. It really needs to be balanced. Um, you know, we we have endorphins. They feel good. You know, right. it's, it, so we we make them naturally when we exercise and do things. Um, but you know, you 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 could and you can get high levels of these things by taking certain kinds of of uh, drugs. Ecstasy. But, but like yeah, that, but yeah. that's not a good thing. Well, I, and I think the key word here, and I think you learned, you taught me this many years ago, was you know physiologic dosing, bringing you right. back mm-hmm. to physiologic balance, not to a super balance, but to where your body's supposed to be. And, you know, and, and then you, and you know it, you know, when you feel, when you get it right, you just feel great. I think we went through some years of people really overdosing and seeing that oh, the Wiley protocol, the yep. Suzanne Summers days where, you know, it was all, let's get back to feeling like, or looking like we're 25 again. And I don't even know and, if your levels are that high then, frankly, I just think, you know, but I, I agree. I think that's great. So just maybe well, a couple more things about this because this is a long conversation, a yeah. fun conversation. What do, you, what do you think about you know, um, imaging for women? Do you, in all your years of practice and all your years of research, <laughs> people talk, people come in and say, I don't want to get a mammogram. I'm scared about, a ma- I'm scared about the radiation. You know, what, what's your comment on that? Well, it's radiation. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Not, not much. Right. But, um, I mean... You know, I, I I'm I'm not one to talk about 
that really. Okay. It's not my field of expertise, sure. but um, you know, if you have a reason. Well, I mean, you, screening you, annual screening thermography. Yeah, if you have a thermography. Could be thermography shown. or mammography. Um, yeah, I. I you, you've not seen anything in the literature that substantiates. I mean, I mean, I know what I learned is that it takes like 30 mammograms to equal one chest X-ray, the radiation, and that yeah, there was no correlation right. to increased risk of breast cancer. And we still encourage people it, to get their yearly mammograms. Yeah, I mean, it helps you identify if there is a specific something that looks like a breast lesion so that you sure. can go in and get a biopsy and find out yeah. if, if it needs to be removed. But safety is there. I think that's important for women. Well, what about women that already have breast cancer? Have we... Have we discussed enough to give our listeners an idea that it might be okay to use some hormones once they've had breast cancer to get relief from the symptoms of... It really depends on the physician. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's there's really not very much literature that says if you use a physiologic amount of estrogen like a patch, that it's increasing the risk at all. Of a recurrence. I just, I just, I just really don't know any any literature that says it's problematic or that the use of progesterone could could help to prevent a recurrence possibly in its breast protective benefits same kind of thing i don't i don't see any literature that says oh you know it's associated with with um an increased risk of of a recurrence Mm -hmm. and that the hard thing is so many women like who have had cancer it's been five ten years they're no longer under the care of a physician anymore they're kind of on their own once you get past that five-year mark you really are on your own and so it's really it's up to that woman to sort through some of this herself and it's hard it's not easy stuff because i'm one of those women (laughs) yeah i know you are yeah so it's it's just one of those I think it's a sticky wicket, but I think we've gone through a lot of good information. And like we said, there's, there is natural progesterone that's over the counter. There's DIM that you can take. There's some herbs and supplements that we can try. Candace, we can post those on the site as well, some of the supplements that we know help with women with their symptoms like black cohosh and things like that. Oh, yeah, there's so many good things. And also just being, you know, reading labels, making sure that you, you see the label that says these animals were not injected with artificial hormones. Grass-fed beef, you know, knowing that it's not everybody can afford organic, but making the best effort you can, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, trying to reduce the use of fragrances and chemical cleaners. I mean, if you can't pronounce all the words, all the ingredients on the back of a bottle, then, you know, avoid it. And look, we've got so many great alternatives. So it's, it's what you do. And it's what, you know, it's what we're not doing. And it's what we're doing. We have to look at all plugging in all the pieces. I wanted to just read something uh, just a little bit from the last of your book, um, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Breast Cancer. Um, On a nitty-gritty, well, we're talking about, we hope you'll remember that progesterone isn't a magic pill. You're a complex human with a body, emotions, a mind, and a soul. And it may be time to pay more attention to what's going on with some or all of these aspects of yourself. On a nitty-gritty level, we hope that you'll get your hormone levels tested, keep your hormones balanced, Eat your broccoli and cauliflower mm-hmm. and avoid trans fatty acids and xenoestrogens. I think that's great. I think that's a good summing up of, you know. Yeah, Jenny Hopkins wrote that. Jenny. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Michael Pollan said, you know, eat, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. 
Getting yeah. back to a plant-based right. diet is really important. And not too much. Not too much. And I remember yeah. when I went to a functional medicine conference years ago in New York, and I thought that, remember, everybody talked about spinach. They talked about broccoli, and broccoli is cruciferous vegetable. Yeah. Cruciferous vegetables are really superfoods. Right. They really turn off some of these cancers. And the berries and yeah. the phytoestrogens, flaxseed and, and, and hemp seed yeah. and And eat that. a rainbow every day. Dr. Oz said, I always tell people, don't, that doesn't mean a rainbow of Skittles. That means a rainbow of food. Mm. Like, you know, have your, you know, the purple potatoes and the red onions and an orange and make sure you have a rainbow every day of food and you're really going to get your... that. I, we do that at, at, at home. We do Jerry too. and I eat like that. I do yeah. too. I, that's, you know, my, my mother was a big fan of having a garden, having fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. We have all these beautiful farmers markets that are open now and they're just wonderful and it makes, it makes eating a pleasure too. Mm -hmm. And also how you age. I mean, I've known you for how many years? 20 years? I've known... Look how much grayer my hair is. It's a little bit <laughs> grayer I, but I, I you don't look took, any I, different. I just took away the Grecian formula. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, doctors, that you're the same weight. Yeah. You you look you you look great. You well, Kyle, I've, the I've same thing. A little, I've gained a little bit of weight from the whole. COVID? You know, COVID thing. Seriously, well, the, the hardest thing is around the middle. I mean, even though how hard there's we a try. bit of inertia going on yeah. here with COVID. Yeah, but Just... I, I'm I'm probably like a lot a lot of people. I'm a bit depressed about the situation. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, know. I can handle it, but it's like, wow, it's a mm -hmm. lot. Well, it's this a lot. is really, you know, something's got to happen. We're si <laughs> well, six months. I know. Well, let's. <laughs> and we know what that is. So getting back to. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Zabu, in, in closing, though, what is the message that you would want women to know about hormones and breast cancer? And what do you hope to see happening in the world of providers in gynecology that would illuminate this in a better way? Well, I think, I think people need to know that, you know, it's, they, they, if they're interested in prevention, which I, I'm really big on, um, that it's, it's getting enough sleep, eating right, like, you said the rainbow. Um, progesterone's great for yeah, helping reducing with sleep. stress. Um, take progesterone, you know, which, which you can get over the counter. Mm -hmm. um, um, if, if particularly if you know you you have issues like uh, fibrocystic breast and and things of that nature. Um, so you know, and if you if you just don't feel right, test your hormones and right. find out. You know what's the problem? Because it could be thyroid, it could be low estrogen, it could be high estrogen, it could be you know some type of a thing that um, you could work with your your practitioner with and mm -hmm. and fix it to yeah. a certain extent. And in the last 20 years, the growth of functional medicine has been huge. You can right. find a practitioner uh, through ifm.org, their physician finder, put in mm -hmm. your zip code and, you know, get with somebody that really knows hormones and hormone testing and hormone rebalancing. It can be done. It can be done and it will be done. And don't give up until you yeah. find somebody. So we always like to end our program with an essential truth that Candace and I came up with when we first well, started doing this work together. And I think one of these would be important is not all hormones are created equal. Bioidentical hormones are better. And we, I think that's the message we came back with no today. No question about that. Right? Did you say? Bio, yeah, absolutely. Bioidentical, plant-based. I mean, the model is really plant-based hormones that are used in physiologic amounts, as right. you two were talking about, during the time, if you're cycling, that you would be making them naturally. And, and delivered in ways that are, you know, most effective, like transdermal patches for estradiol, don't you? Creams. Do you prefer that to oral? You were talking about mm -hmm. the 
rigors of oral. So yeah, I mean, that that's a, a good way to go. Insist upon it. So ladies, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I hope we've covered a lot. I know I know we've covered a lot. I hope mm-hmm. this has helped you and and I'm making some decisions about yourselves moving forward. And Dr. Zaba, as always, yeah. a yeah. pleasure to have yeah. you. Thanks Thank for inviting you. me. Thank Hoorah. you so much. Thank yeah, you for coming. You are really a rock star. Yes. I wish I were. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I always wanted to be In anyway. your next life. I went into science. And- oh, <laughs> you're yeah. a good singer. I know that. <laughs> well, thank you again. Well, here we are at the end of this WTF, Woman Talking Frankly, podcast episode. In signing off, we want you to remember that what you are feeling is not all in your head. And that you have so many options to choose from to get you back to balanced living. Until next time, be well. And remember, if you want a great life, you need to ask great questions. Be courageous. Ask for what you need. With love, Kyle and Candace. Our website is womentalkingfrankly.com, where you can find all of our episodes, check out the show notes for resources, articles, and remedies, and where you can also feel free to email us with any questions, a hormone story, anything you'd like us to share with our listeners. Women Talking Frankly, WTF, is produced by Dan Rigger of Medicine Whistle Studios in his lovely Southeast Portland, Oregon studio. We want to thank our webmaster and dear friend, Deb Hollister of Pure and Simple Graphic Design. We also want to give a shout out to all of our family, friends, and patients for all of their support and encouragement to start this podcast. We are your hosts, Kyle McAvoy and Candace Birch.